Blog Talk Radio.
battles to be fought. You can always call and join in by dialing 323-679-0841. Hit 1. We will acknowledge your last four numbers. The Agenda 40 Days program entails 1. What's going on in your world and the community? Followed by 15, part 3, battles to be fought. As well as we have invited two particular participants, special guests, that may appear on the program today. Susan Pan Africa from Friends and Family, Amunia Abu Jamal, and Emotet. He's an organizer out of Jamaica for the African Black Star. We hope to have them sometime during this program. So, right now, like always, let's get started with our party. And the way we do this is to introduce to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. Right now, we would like to introduce Brother Haki to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, how you doing? Good to hear your voice. My name is Haki Dimafi Mishoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness. And, of course, you know my thing is all about institution building. And, Brother Africa, I got to tell you, one of the things that I find ironic is that when I listen to, you know, diverse media, and they talk about the demonstrations or demonstrators being looters, I always smile when I hear that. In fact, one of the things that uh, most people are not aware of, when you talk about looting, nobody loots more than the, the wealthy class here in America, or is throughout the world as well. So it's very interesting that they will continue to find, you know, people who are struggling uh, out of necessity, not because of something that they've done, because of the because of systematic flaws that exist in society. But then yet, a superimposed, where superimposed upon that is the reality is that you got wealthy people, very, very wealthy people, who rip off the system, not because there's a need a need in terms of more financial wealth, but simply because of the mindset in terms of wealth being a defining factor in their lives. And so it's very, very interesting. So when we, in other words, so when we talk about looters, the real looters exist, you know, in a society. And so I wrote this piece, so I want you to check this out. Now, Robert Wright, the former Labor Secretary under Bill Clinton, talked about predatory lending and securities fraud by financial institutions as a means to loot the U.S. economy. Looting by the wealthy, although surreptitious, has real-life consequences for working people. In the last 10 years, working-class households, according to Mr. Wright, lost $19 trillion in wealth. In 2020 alone, working-class households lost $6.5 billion in wealth. Now, how does this loss of wealth occur? This loss of wealth for working people is a systematic inequality capitalism is based upon. African and working people tend to pay a higher share of their earnings for rent, mortgage, medical bills, daycare, etc. This high cost are not a function of market forces or the community's financial state, but the systematic maneuvering of transferring fundamentally wealth from the poorest people in society to wealthiest people in society. Illustration of this point can be observed by looking at the subprime debacle of 20, 2008. This scheme concocted by Wall Street consisted of combining stocks and bonds of varying market value. Bonds and the stocks are rated on the awareness or the financial shape of the businesses. Triple A, for example, is rated as good. Triple B is rated as difficult. <clears throat> um, because the companies have some kind of problems in terms of actually selling these products or or actually uh, uh, producing their products. Now, a bond rating of triple C essentially means a business is a zombie entity. A zombie entity is a business where which is unable to raise money because the interest rates on the debt is higher than the profits it actually gets encouraged. Now, if the bond business are selling 
excuse me, if the bond businesses are selling bonds that have no value, then why are such businesses allowed to fleece the public? In the case of subprime debacle of 2008, it is deemed, and it is deemed, the right of wealthy, wealthy people to make money, which supersedes any concern of morality, economy, or even law. Security laws were established to prevent blatant manipulation of selling worthless stocks and or bonds, but Wall Street had a plan. In order to get around securities laws, poorly performing stocks or bonds were, were packaged along with high-performing bonds and called collateral debt obligation. This scheme achieved two objectives. First, no, no particular business owner CDOs. In the event you needed to discuss any problem with adjustable rate mortgages, there was no single owner tied to the CDOs or the collateralized debt obligations. Secondly, uh, CDO structures such that values of the home would increase monthly, thus ensuring that those who purchase CDOs would make millions and millions of dollars. The impact of the scheme was compounded by the fact, aside from um, people losing their homes, African and poor people lost a total of $213 billion in total wealth. Now, the systematic looting of working people, the systematic looting of the system was very successful. In fact, no person served any prison time for the scandal. And in fact, the scandal created many billionaires. Now, beneficiaries of the scandal include individuals uniquely tied to the government. Individuals like Henry Pelson, Treasury's former ser- ter- excuse me, Treasury Secretary, Timothy Geithner, former New York Fed Chairman, John Mack, CEO of Morgan Stanley, Ben Bernanke, former Reserve, Federal Reserve Chairman, Richard Fold, uh, Lehman Brothers, Lord Blankenship, former CEO of Goldman Sachs. Now, the looting of the economy goes on unabated. From collateralized debt obligations, collateralized loan obligations, to special purpose vehicle, to variable interest entities, money continues to flow from the wealthy investors while the real economy, jobs, education, and housing continues to stagnate, unavailable to most citizens. Like the Depression capitalists created in 1929, <clears throat> the same is happening now. Systematic looting of the economy will ensure another greater economic depression. Now, <clears throat> how do I know this? Now, when we look in terms of unemployment that exists in society, currently, in over the last over the last six months, 10 million people have lost their jobs. They'll anticipate, in addition to the 10 million people, they're anticipating 43 percent of the current workforce to actually lose their jobs by the end of so-called COVID-19. Uh, interestingly enough, when we look at the service sector, <clears throat> the service sector jobs employ about 70 percent of all jobs in America, including those jobs disproportionately represented by working or African people. So clearly that's a problem in terms of people's livelihoods of people in terms of having access to jobs. Thirdly, uh, <clears throat> Wall Street, when we look at the Wall Street um, in terms of its, its performance on the stock market, and we see the ups and downs in terms of Wall Street. So even though the Fed and the Treasury is pumping huge sums of money into the stock stock market, the bottom line is this money is not geared toward the real economy. It's geared toward <clears throat> wealthy investors and the corporations, which means that there's nothing in terms of the overall economy other than to create a few wealthy billionaires and in, in, in some wealthy individuals. Now, also, it's important to note, Brother Africa, is that when we talk about con- consumer spending, now, consumer spending constitutes 70% of gross, gross GDP, gross domestic product in the United States. Now, if 70% of, of, of the GDP is people spending money, the problem is that if people don't have access to, access to money, then that's a fundamental problem. So how does the system expand if people don't have access to money? Now, this situation is compounded by the fact that when we talk about people spending money, <clears throat> as far as the capital is concerned, that's no longer a priority because now money can arbitrarily be created. They can create money out of thin air. So you don't need people to spend or you don't even need people to produce for that matter. 
But nonetheless, uh, 7% of the GDP is not a small number in terms of potentially being in a position to actually really favorably impact on the economy if people had jobs. Now, this is very interesting also in terms of the coming depression. Uh, most people in America, according to statistics, 80% of them don't have $1,000 in savings in their bank account. This is fundamental problem in terms of emergencies that have come about. So clearly, uh, the people, a, lot of, a lot of people are very, very distressed in terms of what's currently going on. And finally, Brother Africa, let me just say that when we talk about, you know, uh, the demand for food, uh, one of the things that's ironic, when you look at a country like America, supposedly the wealthiest country in the world, and you look at the long line, increasingly the long lines of people who are in these food banks, you know, looking for food to eat, it speaks to a, a, it speaks to a, a real problem. So I think at some point, the systemic nature in terms of how, this po- how the system operates uh, has to be a concern of all people in the society, not just the, the, the middle or income or, or wealthy, but as well as poor people. We've got to get an understanding in terms of how this thing systematically works. In fact, the system is designed to set up a situation where uh, the so-called winners, those individuals who, who by virtue of having some access to large sums of capital, are perceived as winners. And so, therefore, the government does all it can in terms of making sure they can have access to more and more money, while at the same time making sure working people have access to less and less money. So as a consequence, you got people in these, in these soup lines, in these food banks, you're looking for food in the wealthiest country in the world. So clearly, systemically, we got a problem, and we have to recognize that. I think for the African community, the question is, you know, given this backdrop, given this reality in terms of the economic uh, malaise that we're confronted with, the question is, what are we going to do in terms of confronting this or dealing with this? Because it's not going anywhere. The reality is this is the history. This is, this is the future. And the question is, what are we going to do in terms of alleviating, you know, potential hardships that are coming our way? So without institutions, it's a very difficult thing to, to take upon. So we need institutions in terms of being able to uh, prepare ourselves, you know, in, uh, for, the, for the most um, chaotic of circumstances. So I'll close with that, Brother Africa, and simply say, again, thank you for having me. Thank you, Brother Aki. Next, we'd like to welcome Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All right, thank you, Brother Anthony. Following Brother Anthony, we now will welcome Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. It's good to be here again, once again. Um, I have been in the in the struggle for for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. Thank you once again, Brother Ephraim, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. Yeah, listen, audience, you're listening to Africa on the Move. You have just been introduced to our political panelists. And if you are listening to this program, you would like to make any comments, share with the work you are doing and what's going on in your community, we would like to invite you to call in at 
347-609-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. At this point in time, our schedule will be what's going on in your world and the community. Again, this is a segment where you can call for anywhere around the world and share with our people in terms of, in terms of what's going on in your world and your community, what kind of work you are doing, and how can the people help you. So we now are open up what's going on in our world community. Again, please hit one, and we'll acknowledge your last four numbers. Be patient with us, and we're coming to you. So right now, we'll start off with Brother Anthony. We'll start off with you, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world and the community? Okay. Um, well, let's see uh, several things. Um there was uh there was um a, a hanging recently in Morris County, New Jersey. A high school student was found hanged uh in Morris County, uh which is uh between halfway between uh New York and uh northeast Pennsylvania. And uh uh let's see the uh the sher- the, the sheriff uh, immediately jumped to the uh conclusion that it was uh, a, a suicide without a you know a, you know a detailed investigation and um there's a petition effort going on to uh to have the case uh investigated more thoroughly. But it seems like there's been a, a, a rash of hangings inside the U.S. Uh, uh, w- 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 within the last month or so, ever since uh, the demonstrations and uprisings against uh, police repression have been occurring throughout the U.S. and throughout the world, for that matter. And uh, it parallels, uh, you know, the uh, the murders of uh, political activists in Colombia, for example, uh, in which the indigenous people and the uh, Africans are fighting for their human rights. Also, uh, last Monday, uh, June 29th, was the 79th birthday of uh, Kwame Ture. And uh, so, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, people uh, remember his contributions, you know, to our struggle to achieve an Africanism. Okay. Thank you, Brother. We'll come back. <coughs> Excuse me. have the discussion on remembering Brother Kwame Ture um, later on in the segment. Right now, let's go to Brother Haki. What's going on in your world? In the community, Brother Haki. Well, Brother Africa, here we here we go again with the police killings. Uh, you know, uh, you know, of, of, of all the tragedies uh, inflicted upon people by the police, uh, the case of Elijah McClain uh, speaks volumes in terms of the kind of brutality, the kind of sociopathic uh, mindset that exists among so many who consider themselves law enforcement. Uh, but this particular case uh, is particularly disturbing because the young the young brother was uh, a very peaceful a very peaceful young man. Uh, he was a vegetarian. He played the violin. You know, apparently his parents did a very wonderful job in terms of instilling him, you know, sense of self-respect, a sense of respect for others, uh, respect for authority. And so clearly, you know, you would you would think that that kind of individual would be saluted, uh, would be highly respected by law enforcement, 
when he had an opportunity to interact with him. But that didn't happen. In fact, his kindness, uh, his empathy, uh, his consideration, his uh, concern, you know, uh, for all uh, ultimately led to his death. But in any event, there was a, a, a news um, organization called BLAST. Um, they obtained a uh, footage of his interaction with the police on the night that he died. And this is, this is, this is a quote, and this is what um, Elijah McCain is saying to the police while they attempt to so-called restrain him, at least they what they call restrain and we call choke. Of course, um, they allege that the camera video uh, footage from their camera uh, equipment on them uh, was somehow uh, damaged in the process. And so, therefore, they didn't actually capture the, the arrest of this, this young man. Oh, by the way, uh, all his only crime was he went to the store to buy something and then he returned home. They caught him and said that he looked suspicious because he had a hoodie, he had a, uh, a Windows uh, pullover, pullover uh, woody, uh, uh, a mask uh, where you where you wear, you know, when, you, when you're cold. In fact, he's in Colorado, so it's not unreasonable, you know, that given the fact that he was a vegetarian and somewhat anemic, uh, it's not unreasonable that he would have been cold. And so that's what he normally did. He always wore that because it was when he was cold. But anyway, it cost him his life. But anyway, here's something that uh, his interaction with the police, and I quote, so I want you to listen to this very carefully. Now, this is, this is start the quote. Uh, Elijah McCain said, talked to the police. He says, I can't breathe. I have my ID right here. My name is Elijah McCain. That's my house. I was just going home. I'm an introvert. I'm just different. That's all. I'm so sorry. I have no gun. I don't do that stuff. I don't do any fighting. Why are you attacking me? I don't even kill flies. I don't eat meat, but I don't judge people. I don't judge people who eat meat. Forgive me. All I was trying to do was become better. I would do it. I would do it. I would do anything. Sacrifice my identity. I'll do it. You are all phenomenal. He's talking about the cops. You are beautiful. He's talking about the cops. I love you. Try to forgive me. I'm a mood Gemini. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Ow! That really hurt. You all are very strong. Teamwork makes the dream work. He's joking with them when they assaulted him. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to do that. I just can't breathe correctly which is indicative of the fact that he was, he, they were choking him, so he couldn't breathe, so he was maneuvering to try to free his airway. So in any event, this young man, young man lost his life. And that ends the quote. And this young man lost, lost his life. And, and what is interesting, I think, and, and people got to begin to come, come to grips with this. The problem is that with the capitalist system, the way in which people are, are, are socialized or conditioned to believe, think, anyone who's perceived as weak, anyone who's uh, empathetic, Sympathetic, uh, who cares about other people, uh, who's the mean, is not aggressive, uh, who's uh, anti-hostile. Anyone who's perceived as that is perceived as weak. And in context of the capitalist system, we're conditioned to see such a, you know, such such values as a weakness. And so, which explains when you talk about the historical oppression of African people. And one of the things is that African people are always being perceived as weak. Why? Because we don't we, 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 we don't want to attack anybody, we don't want to kill anybody, we don't want to discriminate against anybody, we don't want to hurt anybody, we don't want to do all that thing. Now values speak for themselves, but the wider society being being raised under the dependence of capitalism says that well, such values are indicative of someone who some someone or some people who are happen to be weak, and so because you perceive as weak, then you actually invite more attacks, and this is a, a paradox that we're confronted with in society. Because we still have this mindset in which we don't want to discriminate against anybody, we don't want to hurt anybody, we don't want to kill anybody, 
We don't want to <clears throat> we don't want to create a hardship for anybody. We just want to live in peace and dignity. We are people in positions uh, of power who were brought up on a capitalist system see such such uh, nobility or such values as a weakness. And because it's a weakness, then of course it's to be attacked. And this is the fundamental problem that we are confronted with in a society, uh, you know, in, here in America and throughout the West. If you're perceived as weak, it's, it's foolish for you to think that those people who perceive you weak are going to actually attempt to capitulate, attempt to create a, 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 better, a better way in terms of, 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 of people living together. It's, it's foolish to even think that's going to happen. So clearly we, we, we got some problems. The question is, you know, if those people are conditioned to think that, uh, that the people are weak who uh, exhibit, you know, uh, more positive kinds of traits, then we fundamentally we have a problem in society. This, 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 this society as a whole is generally uh, dis, uh, has a real problem in terms of those values which are deemed as holistic. Uh, as a, we, we, well, for instance, if you talk about those values which are militaristic, aggressive, violent, uh, dishonest, destructive, then it has to seem to have more credibility in the context of the capitalist system. It's not to say people are inherently evil. It's to say that once you internalize those capitalist values, then it's very easy for you to be indifferent to the suffering and pain inflicted upon humanity or, or, or anyone for that matter, whether they be animals or otherwise. So, so clearly, uh, you know, we got some problems, and I think at some point we have to address that and understand the implications in terms of the stance that we take. Uh, you know, because recently, Brother Africa, there was uh, some brothers, about 350 brothers strong, who went down to South Carolina to confront the Klan, and them brothers were armed and ready. They want, they said, you want to, you want to, you want a war? Let's get it on. Of course, the Klan, of course, they, they, of course, they were nowhere to be found because once you, once you assert, you know, your, your authorities assert your, your willingness, you know, to fight for what you believe in. Then they see it as as a sign of a sign of, as a sign of, of strength, and so this is the problem. So anytime we we do a situation in a situation where we actually don't stand up for whatever which is right, and we acquiesce and we and we do it under the guise that if we just set a good example, then we can influence others. Then the problem is that we continue to be seen weak, and so therefore, if them brothers went down there and talk about some, let's have a discourse, let's let's let them discuss about the the problems that exist in society, then the more likely they would have been attacked and killed. But because they showed strength. They went down there, and now the clan was in sight. The them brothers was ready. So clearly, you know, so clearly we got some, we, we got this real paradox in the context of living under capitalist uh, system, and we got some problems that we must begin to address, because we're talking about hardcore survival, and one of the things when we talk about the decline of the of the capitalist system, that is no joke. And so we talk about impending depression. We also have to take into consideration the um, not only depression, but uh, deflation that exact. In other words, as wealthy and wealthy people have access to more and more wealth, uh, the cost of living actually elevates uh, food, clothing, shelter, so forth and so on, become more and more expensive. Now, you contrast it with the reality that people's salaries or wages are going down, 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 but you've got a fundamental problem. So clearly, you know, uh, you know, if you don't stand up and say, hey, listen, I'm in disagreement fundamentally with what's going on, and I'm willing to do what I have to do in terms of resistance, then for those people in the society who look around and look at our people and say, well, listen, these people being vilified, these people being dominated, these people being abused and used, and they still don't do anything, so therefore they must be weak. And so therefore we invite uh, all kind of uh, aggression. We, take, we, invite, we invite all kind of, all kind of suffering to come our way. So we got some, so we got some philosophical questions uh, to ask ourselves in terms of how do we deal, go about dealing with the reality in terms of what it is, in terms of uh, capitalism's ability uh, to inculcate uh, certain kind of uh, aggressive negative values 
and innocent citizens. So I think we have to really think about that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Next, we're going to a new visitor, I believe. We're going to bring the visitor in. They're going to talk about what's going on now. We're in our community. This is a segment where you can do this. We encourage you to call in 323 hit one And we will acknowledge your last four numbers to share with the world what is going on in your world. So right now, what we're going to do right now, we're going to break in, call us 6432 Briefly introduce yourself and share with us what's going on in your world and community. Call up 6432. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Greetings, Brother Africa and the rest of the panelists. My name is Mutu Moyusi. I'm an organizer with the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, um, here in Greensboro, North Carolina. Here lately we have been trying to politically educate the masses of Africans here in Greensboro so we can try to drive them away from um, American politics. Just here yesterday, we tried to put together a demonstration, a protest march for our youth. We were trying to mobilize around the parks and recs um, because they still have our parks closed down and playgrounds closed down so our children can't play. You know, they already... Uh, took them out of school so they can't learn so now they have them so they can't play um, but the the masses of the people didn't show up for themselves to come in and, and support you know the youth uh, we were trying to again bring organization so uh, we got to step back and analyze our situation and look where we went wrong and, and see how we could better organize the people here in Greensboro bring organization so we can educate and, and work towards self-sufficiency so we can stop depending on capitalism, so we can stop being social people, so we can start bringing jobs here in the African communities, so we can stop supporting the major grocery stores that's giving us foods with pesticides and GMOs. We're trying to grow our own foods. We're trying to get some schools that's African-centered where they can learn about their own heroes here in Greensboro. Um, it's, it's a big African community here, but we're all lost. So we're just trying to bring everybody together here in Greensboro and in the surrounding area. Anyone who's uh, willing to help us make progressive change for for the Africans here, uh, we're, we're definitely open to that as well, too. Brother Mutu, can you just elaborate elaborate a little bit more on the issue of denying African people? And such a recreational parks and playground. Talk a little bit more about that significance. Yes. Um, well, as we know, with intelligence, it begins to develop at an infant age, at a toddler age. So our parks and our playgrounds are very important to our children for play purposes. Um, that's where the, we can gather at. Um, so that way we can build social relationships amongst each other. So here in the African communities, I live on the east side of Greensboro, um, our parks and our playgrounds are taped up. Um, they're saying it's because of the COVID-19. So the slides, they have caution tape around the slides. They took our swings and wrapped them around the poles and zip-tied them so that the kids can't get to them. But if you go uh, to the other side of town where the Europeans live at, their parks are free. Um, all the slides are wide open. The, the swings are down. 
and um, our parks over here are, are also underdeveloped. You know, we only have a slide and a swing, uh, most of the time a basketball court. But when you go on the other side, uh, like, for instance, one of the parks that I have to go to to take my children, they have uh, two ba- two baseball fields. Um, they have two uh, playground equipment, two sets of swings, you know, so that the children in that area, it's enough for all of them to play. So uh, what we don't realize and understand is when our parks are underdeveloped like that, um, it it deters our children from wanting to go to them, for one, because there's nothing to do. And so then once they're done, you know, five or ten minutes with the swing and the slide, and the next thing, especially for a young black male, uh, we get to fighting with each other. And then that turns into us shooting each other and getting older. So uh, it's important to, to the development of our intelligence. And, and as I said, they don't underdevelop the European side of town. So uh, that's why we tried to mobilize around that issue. Um, as we know with COVID, they tried to, uh, to, to separate everybody. They kept our children from out of school and just made everyone pass. Even if you weren't passed, they, they just went on ahead and passed you anyway. So, you know, and, and for us as Africans, uh, parents aren't making sure that we're learning. Parents aren't making sure their children are reading. They're not uh, encouraging them to keep up with math uh, or with current events. So those are social, you know, that would be your social studies. So being able to go outside to play would be your next development of intelligence while you're sitting at home. And we can't do that around here. So we're just sitting stuck in the house. Um, And that's a major issue. Um, I've talked to a couple of people from the city, city council. They're they're trying to tell me that all the parks in the city of Greensboro are closed, but uh, we have clear-cut evidence that that's false. Uh, I have pictures. I have videos of me and my family at a park in the European neighborhood uh, enjoying ourselves. At the same time, while the while the parks on our side are, are, are closed off, so that's an issue. Um, so we tried to mobilize around that, but but it was a call for Pan-Africanism for us to see our situation and realize it and come together and, and do something about it and be responsible for ourselves and stop sitting around waiting because uh, that's our issue. That's our problem. We're, we're dependent on a government that's clearly against us, that's clearly killing us. So this was a severe call for Pan-Africanism for what's going on here in this country in 2020 so that way in another three to five years uh george floyd doesn't happen again and we don't have another reactionary response uh following black lives matter we can already be organized with our own people uh directed towards our our own issues putting ourselves first so so that was the attempt uh, uh not to get off 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 topic of of the issue of the importance of the playground um, but the, the no, importance but of that is, is, is so that our children have something to do, so that way they're not just sitting around uh, regressing, just TikToking. Oh, that's what you know. That's what you see our kids doing. They sitting around on Facebook, sitting around on TikTok. You know, TikTok is time. You know, we just wasting time. So it's, it's just a call for that, brother. No, brother Montu, I think you're very um, on the point. Uh, many people don't realize when we talk about oppression when dealing with our people. It coming to come in various subtle forms, and that's one of them. I mean, years ago when they made a conscious decision to take physical education out of the curriculum, 
an education curriculum of our children on the elementary level. That was an intentional intent to undermine our children's development. Because, you know, the mind and the body works together as one. But we'll come back and continue having the discussion because your case is very interesting because we realize here what you just stated is not an isolated one. This is something they're doing all over the country. And this is another example that people need to be conscious of in terms of things I do to unbind the well-being of our people. So we thank you for sharing your realities of what's going on in Greenboro. Please stay on the line, and you're welcome to continue to um, participate with us. Right now, we go to our next person, Brother Moses. What's going on in your world and the community? Well, we had a, a week in which the President of the United States of America trampled upon the rights of the indigenous people by going to South Dakota and, I mean, um, and um, having this in the Black Hills, having this ceremony, uh, um, which, which was just fireworks, etc. Um, and you know, this was uh, a, a, just an atrocity, and um, and people should see it for what it's worth. Meanwhile, um, we. I was able to watch um, Demography Now this week and saw Angela Davis an interview they did um, back in June, evidently. But it just shows that she's that solidarity in terms of the United Front Against Fascism. Uh, basically, she has a clear vision and um, and that we uh, should unite with the democratic and socialist and communist forces to unite against fascism. And I think that was very, very good and insightful that she was able to um, see that we need to take it to the electoral process as well. And anyway, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to take a break. We're going to try one more caller. We're going to see if caller number 5146, if that caller would like to share with us some aspect of maybe what's going on in her world and the community. Call of Last four numbers is five one four six. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, there anything you would like to share as relates to what's going on in your world and community? Today is Sunday, July fifth, twenty twenty, and I'm just calling to reiterate the fact that black men are an endangered species at this moment in time. It's unfortunate, but that's the truth. As I went out today to take care of some errands, I found myself in a small strip mall that has the regular family layouts such as Dollar Tree and uh, restaurants. And as I was about to leave the strip mall, I observed a young white lady Past my car, she looked at me strange and hard, and I didn't say anything or do anything. I sat there for a moment, and as I sat there, I observed the police come, coming, and the police came, and she walked over to the police car, and apparently she had called the police for some reason, but I was going to sit still and find out. After she walked away from the police, car. I saw a young black male. He couldn't be more than 20 or 30, some odd years old. 
and he walked over to the same police vehicle, and he was making some sort of indication that he, too, was going to speak. Neither of them spoke to me, but I was going to sit still and observe. Shortly after the first police car came and parked in a strip mall, a second police car came, and I saw a third police car came. So I could see from my observation that this young man was having a problem. He's a total stranger to me, but I was not going to leave without making sure that he was safe because I, too, have children and grandchildren. And I understand from my observation that something was wrong. So after about 20 or 30 minutes of them talking to this white lady, and a second white lady came and spoke to the police as well. Then the young man went back to his area where he was working or sitting outside. I couldn't make out what he was doing, But I decided that before I left, I was going to speak to him and let him know that I was observing the interaction. And I said, sir, I said, are you okay? And he said, wow, ma'am. He said, you're not going to believe this. He said, but I'm doing a voter's initiative right now. And he said, as I'm sitting here, this white lady walked up to me and asked me if I had a cigarette. And he said, of course, I'm not smoking. I, I do not smoke when I'm working like this. He told her, no, I do not have a cigarette. She went into the store, and then on her way out, she came back past him and said, wow, you effing nigger. And then he returned his favor. He called her a few names also. He told me that he is not going to take it. And I explained to him that I understand his frustration. He said to me, he says, my mom is 70-something years old. He says, her generation took it, and the generation after her took it. He says, but I want you to know, ma'am, I'm not going to take it. He says, these young people today like me, we're not going to have someone call us a nigger and walk away. Yes, I understand. I said, I'm glad you did not strike her. I'm glad you did not hit her because I could see something was wrong. He says, yes, the second white woman that came out heard me retaliating and responding, and she told me, you shouldn't be talking to her like that. And he said, well, you didn't hear what she said to me. So I asked him for his name. I will not share his name without his permission. His full name I have. I have his telephone number. And I will share his first name is Antoine. And I introduced myself to him, and I shook his hand, and I asked him to please stay safe. And I asked him if he had a phone to contact the people who have positioned him here to do the voting initiative. And he said yes. So then I felt comfortable to leave. But that's just on the spur of the moment on a Sunday, on July 5, in 2020, in the state of Colorado, We still see this kind of hate, malice, ignorance, retaliation. So I say to you today, black men are an endangered species. And he said, thank you, ma'am, for not leaving. I said, I could not leave. 
I was not going to leave until I understood clearly what was happening. The police saw me also, and they have a distaste for me in Colorado, and as well know, they don't even know why they hate me, but they do. Nevertheless, I'm not afraid. I feel a moral commitment to do whatever I can on the spur of a moment because things can go from zero to a hundred if no one is there. I want you to understand that I've lived a long time. I've seen a lot of hate. And I'm old school. I go back to the time when we had one white doctor, and that white doctor had two separate waiting rooms, one for the coloreds and one for the whites. We're not that far away from that kind of division. So today, July 5, 2020, I just observed something that I did not expect to see at this time in Colorado. I will not comment on the pain and anguish that I'm aware of Elijah McLean. Yes, he too, as previously shared, was a young black male whose life was cut short. And after cutting his life short, they took photographs, thinking it's a joke. So they have no respect for our lives. This is shameful. It's painful, but it's real. Thank you. Thank you, Carl, for sharing with us what's going on in your world community out in Colorado. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls. We're going to take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we're going to continue to discuss what's going on in our world and the community. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Passport Rev. Malcolm on Twitter featuring Napoleon Dumb Legend. What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it Cause integration been disintegrating Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation His last speech got him assassinated Black business was booming, it wasn't just a consumer Controlling our narrative, we have more marriages And see what the damage did, they ain't that bad a bitch And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery I'll never be an agent, I don't care what they paying me Seemed like Nip had the same old story If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive Who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler Trying to be a people of that low vibe structure Agree to disagree and we ain't gotta tear our own down Argue in silence, they'll forever be our own down All I wanna say is that we're giving it away Soul ain't for sale and the devil is a fake Argue with the silence, but don't let it seal our fate Right behind doors, but don't ever show our face Cause if Mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter It'd be our own people do the trolling Just be on ignorance and do the scolding Where we going? Cause if Mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter It'd be our own people do the trolling Just be on ignorance and do the scolding Where we going? Thank you. 
Sometimes the key to life you looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I want to get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. Nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to let. To get off the ride and stop going through these changes We must prepare and learn how to care But soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger And when the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, 
a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino! You can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone back to Africa on the Moon. We will continue discussing what's going on in your world and the community with our political analysts and panelists and some guests we have decided to join us during this segment. Right now we'll continue continue this discussion, then we will follow it up with speaking to the theme today, which is part three, Ballads Before. There has been some articles we have identified an article of interest in which we think that um, we can learn from as it relates to trying to better understand our community and our world. So right now we're just going to pick back up on what's going on in our world community. We would like to bring Brother Anthony and the rest of the panelists and guests in. I will ask Brother Anthony to, to start off this discussion and his response, and then it's open to the rest of my panelists. Brother Anthony, you mentioned again earlier this week we begin to see more so-called 
uh, lynching and hanging of our, our people, African people today, and they are calling it suicide. Well, we know, those of history know that one of the things in terms of the characteristic of, of the behavior of a people is that most African people does not have the kind of tendency to just outright hang themselves. This is something historically has been not a characteristic of the behavior of African people. So what do you make of this continuation and this acceleration or hanging of our people at this point in time? And by publicizing it, do we run the risk of getting uh, immune to it and just accept it as it is, business as usual? How can we make sure we don't get immune to it and begin to find out the real truth of what is really happening? Your response, Brother Anthony. And then the panelists can weigh in and I guess. Sure, certainly. I think it's um you know the uh you know the atrocities that are committed against us we cannot afford to forget those. So uh so not publicizing it will not make it go away. As a matter of fact it makes it worse. And uh what we have to do as a people is to figure out ways of preventing it from happening. We have to get better organized so that we can politically educate and defend ourselves against attacks from our enemies, which are primarily manifested in various forms of capitalism, such as neocolonialism and, uh, you know, racism that seems to pervade, uh, uh, seems so pervasive in this uh, capitalist society uh, But it's important We understand that what is going on Is not unique, unique To us in this part Of diaspora It is happening throughout Africa And the African diaspora uh, People that stand up That are standing up for our Human rights Are, are increasingly being a bit, 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 Being killed For the political stances That they take and that is designed to inculcate fear in the masses of our people, to make them uh, uh, afraid to stand up, and uh, to and and to put up with the uh, you know the violation of our human rights. But it's important that we recall that we recall. Uh, the acts of torture we've been subject to since the Ma'afa started nearly 500 years ago, and that we don't forget what happened to us, and that we pass the struggle on to our children, and uh, and make them know, and that that the only that the only way to create a better life for ourselves is through permanent organization. To achieve uh, the liberation and unification of our homeland, and therefore the liberation and unification of our people worldwide. Brother Haki is uh, publicizing this by the media. One of the tactics they are using in the past is that the more they show it, they hope that people with kids get used to it as business as usual and become insensitized. That possibly happen, happening, and how can we avoid that? Yeah, I'm not sure if the media's motivation is to sort of get us to become immune to uh, the atrocities of pain, you know, African people. 
I, I think I think their motivation is purely sensationalism. I think that's their primary motivation. I think the more pivotal question is uh, the people who are actually hanging Africans throughout the United States. The question is, what is their motivation? Uh, there's no question this uh, this uh, this, uh, this whole concept of accelerationism. You know, the whole notion that you know as things deteriorate, it creates a golden opportunity for the Nazis and the KKK types in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the United States in the West as well. Uh, to actually come with the closet and begin assassinating people wholesale. So I think to some extent, I think this, this, this hanging people is sort of a, a, an attempt, a strategic attempt uh, to get African people to respond in, in a way which is maybe not um, most well thought out. And so as to justify, you know, uh, you know the, the, the mass killing of African people uh, based upon our particular our behavior. So I, so I think that real motivation is, is I think, that the people who are doing that. Uh, I, I think they, they want us to, to do something. But the key for us, I think, is to simply think about, you know, tactically, what is it we got to do in terms of moving forward? And to do things, you know, uh, you know uh, sporadically or to do things without constantly thinking about it, we don't want to play into that hand. So I think that we under, they've got to be very careful about, you know, strategically how we handle this kind of situation. But F is very, very right. What is key here is is organization. So that's that's key in terms of making sure this kind of thing doesn't happen. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things we particularly when we talk about rural areas and you're talking about um, you know traveling at nighttime, you know this climate. I mean, clearly, uh, that might not be the wisest thing to do. It's not to to inculcate fear in anybody's mind, but the reality is that you know the climate that we currently live in. We we understand that it's not just a situation where. You got these poor white folks yelling in the N word over and over again and talking about how they like to assassinate folks. But we're talking about high power, you know, uh, white folks in positions of power and authority in, in government and corporations and law enforcement who also have a de- desire to um, a ter- exterminate, you know, African people. So clearly, with all this going on, then we got to be sort of circumspect in terms of, you know, when, when we go out in areas that we go out, that we, we got to move in a way in which we're protective. And I, I, I think, in addition to that, we have to be organized. So, you know, and if we can identify those individuals who actually do that, then there should be some type of repercussions in terms of those individuals who, who did that, if we can identify who they are. Uh, but other than that, you know, I think the key here is, 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 is you know, is to think, uh, to be strategic, to think tactically, uh, and to move forward and um, not allow ourselves to be goaded into doing something which doesn't serve our best interests. Brother Moses, your response to this these hanging? Well, this is uh, unacceptable, obviously. <coughs> um, uh, these hangings are, uh, you know, uh, terrorism. It's terrorism, and uh, we cannot be intimidated. Uh, we shouldn't have the spirit of fear. But power and love and a sound mind, and so um, hopefully, you know, we won't be uh, distracted from the prize, and um, that we stay focused and in the struggle and continue to struggle uh, for the complete liberation of our people. Uh, this is the only way to go. Thank you. And to our participants, Brother Mutu, at the end we go to call on five one four six. Your response to this phenomenon, Brother Mutu. Yes, uh, I feel like that it is uh, it is symbolism, as Dr. Francis Wilson would put it. Um, 
as when Trump first got in office, you know, he, he screamed for make America great again, make America great again. So I believe that this is a symbol of their their authority, of their power. Um, as Brother Kwame Ture would say, you know, if a white man wants to, to lynch me, that's his problem. But if he, if he has the power to do it, that's my problem. So that's something we have to do about that, as the other brothers have stated. We most definitely have to have organization. We have to have solidarity. Um, as the sister stated earlier, we must watch each other. Um, that's something that we're trying to push here in Greensboro, um, help another brother and watch, you know, some suspicious activities um, with our people. Please intervene and, you know, uh, holding the camera. Yeah, it's, it's, we, it's allowing us to see it, but it's just showing the power that they have. It's just doing the same thing as we they did on the plantation when we sat and just were spectators to when they beat us. That's the same. That's the same symbol of us standing there holding a the camera. You know, it's just like us standing on the porch watching one of our strongest men being beaten and broken down. So, uh, like I said, here in Greensboro, we've been reaching out to to ex-military brothers and sisters who know tactical training that can teach us responsibly. So that way, um, our youth and ourselves, when we get put in those situations, we can we can defend ourselves and, and not end up like that. So uh, we definitely have to have unity and organization. Um, we have to adapt the philosophy of not allowing things to happen to each other while we just stand and watch. And we also have to help each other. We have to help each other out. We have to be willing to suffer with, with one another. Because it, even if we don't, you know, you're suffering inside. Even if you're not suffering physically, we're still suffering uh, emotionally and mentally. And that's having, an, that's having an effect on the morale of us all. So, uh, so we definitely have to come together. Um, but but it, is, it is symbolism. That's what these hangings are, symbolism. Same thing with the knee. The knee is a symbol, a symbol of Colin Kaepernick taking the knee to their flag. That was one thing that, that teased America off. You know, the mask, they want us to wear masks. That's a symbol of I can't breathe. When you got the mask on, you can't properly breathe. You can't get the fresh oxygen that God put here for us. So it's all symbolism from from racism, white supremacy. And, and we just we just conform to it with no problems because we're so used to them being the, the ones in power. I'll leave it there. And we're going to Sister 5146. Well, I want to see a response to these hanging of our youth today. Call a 5146. I, I do agree with what the panel has sh- shared so far, that this is designed to intimidate and send a message. And it's, just, it's really suspect as to how these men lost their lives by hanging. And I don't see the evidence of that. I think that symbolism is a very powerful tool that they use to intimidate and shut you down. There's a scripture that says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So the strategy is that if they cannot physically harm you, then they imply that you're willing to harm yourself which is not true. We've endured a lot of pain over the years. 
And I'm not convinced that these things are real. It's suspect to me. Nevertheless, we as individuals must be courageous. We do need organization. We do need solidarity. We do need to support each other. But as an individual, we must always be vigilant. Not just from 9 to 5, but we need to be vigilant 24-7. God forbid, if they are able to do what we're seeing in the daylight, what are they capable of doing in the dark? So from the time we walk out of our doors until the time we return to some safe haven, we need to be vigilant because this is serious. It's real. It's painful. And it doesn't need to be happening in America in 2020. It doesn't need to be happening anywhere in the world in 2020. So we're dealing with the pandemic because it's affecting the whole world, but we're also dealing with racism that's toxic and is also worldwide. Thank you, brother. Okay, Brother Haki, earlier in your position dealing with um, this question of you talk about how the narrative or how they present the behavior of um, these various movements that are taking place in U.S. throughout the world, they talk about the concept of looters. Identify them as looters. And you talk about that particular phenomenon. Now, what I want to ask you is, looting come in different forms, and I agree with you say earlier. And I think you need to some kind of way change the paradigm. And when you look at looting, I'm just going to mention some of the other tactics they use as a form of looting, but a lot more sophisticated. For example, Brother Haki, they loot the, the so-called American treasure, treasury and people money just by making tax laws, they make legislation laws. They make a, a law that entails a thousand pages when you could do it, maybe write the law on one page. But in a thousand pages, they have all kinds of loophole or allocate money to their friends, to institutions they own, etc. And no one said nothing about it. They get billions of dollars away. When you look at the politicians who run local governments and state governments, they have allocation funds where they can just take hundreds of thousands of dollars and give the people they want. And no one said about that kind of looting. So I definitely agree with you in terms of they are, they are the world looters of the world when you're talking about looting. And there are people need to understand you know, how looting take place in the various forms. So I just thought I'd just throw that out to you and the rest of the panelists to have a little bit more further discussion on who are the real looters. Your response, Brother Hackey. Yeah, well, that's no question about it. Uh, the whole process in terms of looting treasury is very sophisticated. And they're not going to tell you that on the, on the mainstream news. They're not going to tell you how the, 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 the elite, the business class is uh, looting the treasury. They're not going to tell you that. But one thing I think is very clear, and I think this is easier for people to understand, we have to think about in terms of neo-feudalism in society. So when we talk about neo-feudalism, essentially we talk about, we go back to um, uh, pre-14th century England. 
when we look at the rise of the kings and we look at in terms of the kind of power they have, the kind of access the wealth they had, then superimposed upon that, we look at in terms of the situation for the masses of people in, in Europe in terms of being poor and impoverished and exploited. So clearly we've got a, 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 a sucking coming of sort that's happening right here you know, in, the, in the 21st century, where increasingly the capitalist class, that one tenth one percent of the population, to be more precise, have an enormous amount of power and access to wealth. In fact, they're like kings, and so laws don't apply to them. They do simply what they want to do, when they want to do it, and who they want to do it to, and they have no recourse. Uh, and then, of course, on the, on, on the other spectrum, then we talk about the masses of people who are disin, disinfected. Uh, disempowered, rather, uh, and so we talk about uh, you know that actually that number of people actually proliferate. Actually, that, that number is actually growing, and so you have all of these people at the so-called bottom, you know, who don't have access to jobs, who don't have access to housing, who don't have access to quality education. So this this is kind of problem proliferate, and of course the question becomes, what are the masses of people going to do? And one of the things that the capitalist class does very well at is putting poor people against poor people. So you would think that given this reality in terms of the, the systematic impoverishment of the society, that poor people would look and say, you know what, I see the game, I'm going to work with other, other people who are poor, impoverished, and we can work together to fight that, those people in the White House or those people who live in the White House. But it doesn't happen that way because racism is so insidious, it sort of uh, negates against any understanding in terms of uh, um, oppression when it comes to, to white lives. And so often white people don't see uh, they don't, or don't, uh, t- don't don't appreciate the same level of oppression that African people appreciate it. It's not that it's not that um, oppression of white folks don't exist. Of course it does. Uh, it's just that African people have much for a longer period of time have much more privilege in terms of the inner workers in terms of oppression, and so therefore we much easier we can spot it. But nonetheless, that same oppression applies to poor white folks. So the question is, how do we get poor white folks to understand that we're in the same boat? And the people that you should be fighting are not the people who are also poor, but the people who live at the White House, who reside at the White House. So, so clearly this, this question in terms of you know, looting the treasury is, is nothing new, Brother Africa. It's not, just, it's not just, for instance, you talk about the 401c in terms of how they do that, how they give money to their friends you know, to, keep their tax, to keep their taxes low. We can also talk about offshore accounts. We can talk about the Bank of International Settlement in terms of places where wealthy people can, can, can park their ill-gotten wealth and not pay a damn cent on it. We can talk about accounting rules that make sure that if you're wealthy, you got the right down accounting, you don't pay any taxes. We can talk about the courts. We can talk about corporations in terms of avoiding taxes. Uh, the laws are written to make sure that those taxes are avoided. When we look at the White House and we talk about the fact that you talk about tax breaks, now you give somebody who makes $1.4 million a year and you give them a tax break of $1.3 million a year, so what does that say in terms of in terms of the the, 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 the well-being of the, of most citizens in the society? Since most citizens in American society are poor, then what does that say about them? But you're willing to give someone who already got wealth, give them increasingly even more wealth. So what does that say? So this question in terms of winners and losers is a very important question for people to grasp. And so otherwise, so when you hear some wealthy person talk about some uh, you know losers in terms of you know, poor people being losers. And then when they talk about winners, then they never clarify when they talk about winners. Essentially, what they're talking about the people who are people who are on our team, those people who benefit from our policy, or who benefit from economic policy, or political social policy, are people who are on our team. And so if they're wealthy, we create a situation in which they can they can excel. Uh, conversely, when it comes to poor people, we create a situation uh, in which they can excel. We vilify them, we demonize them, we create situation conditions in which we make sure that it's very difficult for them to rise. 
And so we have to understand the systemic nature of the system of the oppression that, we, that we're confronted with, because if we don't understand the, 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 the systematic oppression that we're confronted with, then we can't appreciate the more complex uh, uh, strategy they utilize in terms of systematic and transferring wealth from the poorest people in society to the wealthiest people in society. And that's something they fundamentally do all the time, and people don't realize it because it's never presented in those terms. So you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. It is looting, but, of course, people position the power, those people who own those telecommunications corporations are not going to tell the masses of people that the ruling class engage in looting the system all the time. And, in fact, if we, if, and if we don't address the question in terms of looting among, you know, by the welfare of the capitalist class, then clearly uh, it puts us at a real disadvantage. And so this is why we have to begin to understand, you know, when this, when this, when this looting takes place, to see it, to recognize what it is and to call it out and to organize around it. Because I'm going to tell you something. No matter how, um, how um, congenial we are in terms of our willingness you know, to get along, the bottom line is as long as you have an economic disparity that exists in society, the reality is that when we talk about police brutality, for instance, or you talk about mass incarceration, or you talk about general, uh, this general uh, lack of respect, then clearly we can understand those kind of situations are continue to, will continue to, to, to proliferate. They're not going to decrease. So clearly we have to understand that this game is being played and it's at our expense. Okay, panelists and audience, uh, we spoken earlier at the beginning of the program. We said we did invite several individuals to come on and share with us today on what's going on in our world and the work that they are doing. We have reached out to Brother Emote Ashanti. He's an organizer out of Jamaica. Um, we think we may have him on the line. We can go and see if we have him on the line. He's going to discuss with us the nature of his organization and what they're doing in Jamaica and how we can connect our struggles. So let's just see if we got them on the line now. We can go to call of 9435. Call of 9435. Come in, caller. Can you hear, hear us, caller? Do we have brother? I can hear you, my brother, and thank you. And let me thank you on behalf of Brother Imhotep for your invitation. Unfortunately, because of the communication monopoly that exists on the capitalism he was unable to get through and we're trying to figure out how it will be possible that we can strike a blow against these communication capitalist pigs so that we can talk to our people around the world Okay, my brother, thank you. What we're going to try to do, we're still going to see if we can reach out to him before we leave out tonight. But if not, definitely we'll try to work something out by next week to have him on because we believe it's very important. We must connect our struggles and connect our peoples because we are one. So, my brother, I'd like to thank you for sharing the update with us on the status of trying to unite with our brother Emotech out of Jamaica. We thank you. But while we have you online, brother, is there anything you'd like to share with our listening audience from your perspective, so what's going on in your world, the community, that our people need to be aware of? Well, the one thing that I am currently worried about is that a lot of our young people today are correctly gathering arms to face the challenges and to be able to defend ourselves and our people. Unfortunately, our young brothers and sisters still do not understand that gun in the hand 
without political consciousness in mind is a dangerous thing and can easily be used against us. And so, again, I would encourage our young brothers and sisters to build and gain political consciousness because that is just as important as the tools we use. The weapons is a tool. And unless we know what we're fighting for, there's no need for us to fight. If we don't understand what we're fighting for and all we know is what we're fighting against, then we're half lost. We got to become conscious. It's incumbent on us. It's not something that we can choose to do or not do. It's something that we must do. Brother, that's very powerful. Very powerful. Penless, um, the observation of being conscious is the most important thing first and foremost before you talk about picking up weapons. Your response to that to that to that particular um Ideal. I'll start. I, I I believe the brother is correct. Uh, it is critically important that we keep in mind at all times what we're trying to build, rather uh, rather than what we're trying to destroy. And what we're trying to build is uh, is uh, one unified socialist Africa. That is the ultimate solution to our problems. And, uh, you know, tied to what you were saying earlier, Brother Africa, regarding looting, looting, you, uh, you're correct, it takes many forms, a lot of which we're not aware of because uh, the state of confusion that all forms of exploitation keep us in. And in order to fight effectively, we have to we have to increase our political consciousness. There's no doubt about that. And the most effective way of doing that is through joining political organization. And uh, that is one of the key reasons why Kwame Ture devoted his entire adult life to organizing our people. And uh, and uh, that's the most important lesson he left us, is that we have to be organized in order to bring about our liberation. Okay. On that note, what we're going to do, we're going to take a revolutionary break, cultural break, and when we come back, we're going to start on, our, on part three as we discuss battles to be fought. We're going to talk about the Congo. What's going on in Congo and the Cobalt? In the screen, Brother Anthony, we'd like for you to take the lead on that particular article. So when we come back, that's where we're going. You got to listen to Africa on the Moon. Marcos, eles não ligam pra gente.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine. Palestine, needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our love. needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs our We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Yes, we can forget about our brothers and sisters in Palestine, nor can we forget about any of our indigenous brothers from all over the world as they face and are oppressed by imperialist, capitalist, Zionist, neocolonial systems. We welcome you back to Africa and move. We're going to talk a little bit about the theme tonight, part three, battles to be fought. Battles to be fought. There are many battles that need to be fought. And we're just going to talk about a few tonight. Right now, we're going to ask our brother, we're going to ask our brother Anthony. There was an article we, we read and highlight for this week dealing with the Congo, dealing with monitoring cobalt miners in the Congo, which we think is of significance in terms of raising many issues and concerns. Brother Anthony, we're going to tell you come in, leave us all, and speak to this article what's going on in the Congo as we really as relates to cobalt miners. Okay. Uh should start out by pointing out that cobalt is a metal that is used to make the lithium ion batteries that power 
of computers, smartphones, and electric cars. And two-thirds of it come out of this uh, one section. of uh, Two-thirds of the cobalt in the world comes out of this one section of Africa, the Congo. And uh, this article uh, talks about monitoring, uh, uh, you know, the the cobalt mines in the Congo to uh, try to uh, minimize the exploitation of child labor. Minimize it, but the essence of it, that it still continues. And that uh, one of the battles that we're fighting is regaining control of our land uh, for, 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 for the use for our own purposes. And right now, because of neocolonialism, the masses of the Congolese do not control their own land. And uh, there are... Uh, there are um, there are ongoing migrations to areas that have cobalt reserves that results in an imbalance in terms of um, agricultural development, um, you know, and where and where people settle. And so, uh, uh, artisanal mining is a method of monitoring. Uh, the extraction of the cobalt, but it doesn't uh, do anything to get to root of the problem, which the, it, which is the exploitation of uh, Africa's resources to uh, to benefit uh, imperialist uh, enterprises, uh, uh, such as these various electronics and computer manufacturing companies. Uh, let's see the um, uh, the points the article raises that supposedly this monitoring is supposed to be uh, economically uh, you know beneficial and a way of uh, you know uh, you know ameliorating the exploitation of child labor but it still occurs and uh not only in the Congo but uh other parts of Africa that are rich in mineral resources the exploitation of human labor occurs and uh and one result of that article doesn't mention that because of the resources devoted to mining and to growing cash crops such as tobacco coffee and uh and uh uh cocoa uh let's see land isn't available to grow food sufficient to, for africans to feed to feed ourselves so i i i i you know i think that's a real problem that only pan africanism can ultimately solve Brother Hackery, what concerns and lessons that we need to draw from this article based upon your um, investigation of reading this article? What did you get from it in terms of things that we need to be aware of or we can learn from in terms of these kind of agreements that we have with our former colonizers? 
Yeah, well, I, I think a lesson we can take from this is that uh, imperialism is intractable. Uh, this notion that somehow you're going to form imperialism ain't going to happen, not going to happen. In fact, the sole motivation of this whole artisan uh, mining plan has nothing to do in terms of better lives of of the people in the Congo. It has more to do making more efficient in terms of exploitation or cobalt. In other words, uh, one of the things, a couple of things, I think first thing, they have, they have, they're very concerned in terms of the whole process in terms of, you know, uh, uh, the sale of cobalt. Normally it goes to local traders who goes to cooperatives, to local traders who in turn have a relationship with international traders. And so therefore... Uh, the process uh, is somewhat convoluted as far as the capital is concerned. It would be better a situation if uh, if the if the um, cobalt went directly from the cobalt right to the international uh, sellers. I think the second thing is about Africa. I think it has more to do in terms of undermining um, uh, China's influence or China's uh, access to cobalt. I think one of the things that this is initiative, uh, which comes out of Germany uh, by the uh, so-called um, RCS Global. And uh, the Response for Minerals Initiative comes out of Germany. And so, therefore, it's very, very clear that that motivation has nothing to do in terms of the well-being of the Congolese people. In fact, one of the things in, the, in their article, they talk about the fact, and this is a quote, the artificial mining can be an ethical source of low-cost, high-grade cobalt, and a key mechanism in keeping the market balanced during supply shortages. That certainly doesn't sound like they have an interest in terms of the, the, the Congolese people. But I've got to say to you, Brother Africa, one of the things in, in terms of this kind of a permanent uh, manipulation, you know, of a Congolese market, what I'm very perturbed about is the fact that, I, I, you know, in the 21st, 21st century, why is it that still so many uh, African leaders are complicitous or who are so willing to allow the exploitation of their resources uh, despite the fact, you know, that uh, when you look at the growing problems in Africa in terms of the disparities in terms of wealth, that why would you continue to participate in the process or system which will ensure the underdevelopment of your country? I, I, I don't understand it. In particular, when you start talking about the high cost of cobalt, in particular, cobalt is so important because not only talking about powering electric cars, it's good for batteries or other kind of electronics. So the, in the Western world, have to have it. So it's a must. So the cost of cobalt will only continue to increase. And so, therefore, there's a global opportunity for leaders in the Congo and other parts of Africa who have access to cobalt to actually be in a position to benefit from that trade. But the corruption is yet so great, and, 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 and I've got to tell you, Brother Africa, it's, it's disheartening on some level. But clearly the impetus of, the, uh, impetus of, these, of these people in the Western world in terms of making this process more efficient has nothing to do in terms of the interests of people. In other words, these children who work in the woods a very dangerous metal, it's not going to change. That's going to continue. What will change is they're going to make it much more profitable, one, and secondly, make it much more easy to access that cobalt directly from the Democratic Republic of Congo directly to the West, thereby cutting out the middlemen, corrupt middlemen who exist in Africa and other parts of the world in terms of the sale of cobalt. So clearly, Brother Africa, this has nothing to do in terms of the, 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 the betterment of, 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 of the Congo. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're very clear on that point, that this is all about, uh, this is all about maximizing profits and nothing more. Brother Moses, your analysis, what you took from this article. Yeah, this article is very interesting. I, I think the child labor um, was of great concern, uh, fact that the children are um, trying to do what they can to survive and uh, and this capitalist monetary system 
obviously they need money, and so they are using uh, rocks and things to to gather um, this um, mineral. And so um, obviously that means they're being exploited um, because obviously you know they're not unionized, they're they're not uh, sophisticated traders, and uh, and so that's of concern. Um, I, I'm not going to comment much more on the article. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. You know, panelists, if others on like Wayne, just on this concept, they have an understanding of the economic relationship of African countries and to the West, it make me again um, realize why Africa is such a dependent position today because when you look at one, the economic partners, you know, about these companies out of, out of Germany, and allowing them the right to monitor not one or two of their mines, uh, uh, mines, but they give them the right to monitor all of the cobalt mines in, in the Congo to dominate the military. And these are the same folks who historically have undervalued, underpriced, lied, distorted, and cheated to steal your minerals. And when you talk about this question of neocolonialism, this is a good example in terms of looking at these kind of positive relationships. Why would they give these companies, starting in 2023, the total right to mine and monitor all of the cobalt uh, miners throughout the countries and sites? And that is, you know, the same predicament that you find many African countries when you talk about their resources. It's still being controlled, being managed, being um, uh, monitored by Western forces who have no interest at all of them. So I just think this is a very telling article that um, Congo is going to be in some difficulties, continue to be in difficulties with these type of relationships dealing with these type of companies. So I just thought that if people get a chance that you take a look at this program, this article, which was written on the 21st of April, titled Program to Monitor Cope. Congo artillery cobalt miners expanded. And then finally, thoughts for anyone else who may would like to share their thoughts on these types of relationships as relates to Africa and resources to the West. Well, Brother Africa, you, 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 you're absolutely correct. It's the, the epitome of um, uh, neo-colonialism, um, uh, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, one of the things, you know, that we, we expect more leadership, you know, from African leaders in terms of addressing this, this, this fundamental problem, near colonialism. Uh, but but unfortunately, you know, uh, it's, it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult hard sell. In the situation of Kenya, they have a young man, uh, Professor Lumumba, uh, who's responsible for bringing corruption to an end. We have Professor Lumumba, who lost his position. He lost his position. Uh, because he did too too good a job in terms of wiping out corruption in, in the East African state. Uh, so clearly, this problem in terms of the complicity that or that exists among you know corrupt African leadership in the West is something that um, you know we have to highlight. Uh, as much as we want the African leaders to stand up and do that which is uh, in the benefit of Africa, the bottom line is that they still have this mindset in which it's all about the individual. 
and, and as such, if they continue to push the individual, then they do so at the detriment of the development of the continent as a, as a whole. And so then we got a lot of work to be done in terms of uh, uh, sort of sensitizing, you know, African leadership uh, to the problems in terms of neocolonialism. Now, give me, don't get me wrong. It's not like they don't understand the, the, the tenets of neocolonialism. They understand quite well that they're being exploited. They understand that. But certainly they're, but they're willing in terms of to, to tolerate the exploitation as long as they benefit, you know, independent, in, individually. But clearly, you know, so when we talk about neocolonialism, we have to also talk about in conjunction with those who participate, who acquiesce to colonialism, to make it a possibility, to make it real on the continent. So, uh, so I think that, uh, you know, um, you know, when I think about the recent elections in the, in the Congo, and I look at in terms of kind of corruption, in terms of political process, uh, time to will and didn't take place. That clearly you have a, a system in place which rewards the most corrupt individuals, you know, you know, in the Congo uh, to positions of leadership. They, of course, ingratiate themselves to all the wealth of the land and, 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 thereby, and, and in the process leaving the, the country poor and barren. So clearly, Brother Africa, we've we got a lot of work to do in terms of raising a consciousness on the continent. And brothers and sisters, uh, and the good thing is that the Congo has such a young population. It is good that brothers and sisters are rising up and begin to see the corrupt leadership for what it is and the kind of uh, participation in this corrupt uh, uh, neocolonial process has to come to an end. So it's good to see the young brothers and sisters begin to understand that and are beginning to advocate, you know, a fundamental change in terms of how business is conducted in the Congo. So I'm optimistic that things will change, but it's going to, it's going to take some work. So I think in addition to the young brothers and sisters on the, you know, on the continent uh, advocating for change, we in the diaspora have an obligation to also advocate for real change on the continent. Okay, Penny, let's make a transition to the next article we want to highlight. Um, titled UConn's Football Failures Are Catching Up to It and School Has Itself to Blame. These articles were printed on the 26th of May, 2020, and deal with sports on the university level. And when you're talking about exploring human resources, I think this is a good example. One of the things the article mentioned is that the University of UConn is in a $40 million debt in terms of the athletic um, department. And as a result of it, many students who are out doing will have to lose their scholarship and will not be able to attend school. But one of the questions I have is that how could such a university, and this is, this is something typical of many universities that people don't talk about, how could a school be in that type of debt and continue to give coaches big million-dollar contracts. Um, panelists speak to the contradiction in this article in terms of its irrescusable excuse of having that kind of debt while at the same time constantly signing contracts when they knew the money wasn't there, but now the athletes were to pay for it. And, of course, when they normally do first cuts, many times they will cut those sports that are the least revenue-making and then it will impact on those sports that may be revenue-making, which will, which means, again, African students will get a short end of it because they talk about athletes and getting money, but while at the same time it seems like anybody grabbing their money by all means possible. So I can leave us all with this article, Brother Moses, what y'all make of this corruption and how it can affect the whole university 
um, sports system as colleges continue to, you know, find ways to get people money, but while at the same time, they're constantly running up debt. Yeah, well, I, I, I find it ironic. You know, when you talk about a sport like football, the billions and billions of dollars to the institution that they will find themselves, you know, fundamentally in an economic bind. So I think it speaks to the kind of uh, not only nepotism that exists, in, you know, in, in college ranks, but I think it also speaks to a kind of racism uh, uh, that exists in terms of, you know, college athletics. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, football is very, very popular. So I think the assumption by a lot of these administrators is that, you know, we can live a good life you know, at these football players' expense uh, because there's more money to be had down the road. I, I, I think that, you know, anytime you're bringing your, your friends and you, you're paying them, you know, million-dollar salaries, you know, for, for, for work, which, which can be done essentially, you know, by students. You really don't need administrators to do a lot of work that's being done. But anytime you're bringing your, 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 your buddies in terms of, you know, you know, finding, you know uh, paying them large sums of money, you know, uh, it is certainly the money not well spent. And so I think that uh, the mere fact that they were able to do that, to get away with that, to, to give up these large contracts to individuals who are not needed, speaks volumes in, volumes in terms of the kind of nepotism that goes on in, in college sports. So I, so I think that um, you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. I think that people who are going to pay the price ultimately are going to be those individuals who are bearers of scholarships. And particularly, we talk about African athletes you know, who may not have the resources in terms of returning to university. But because of athletic um, scholarships and athletic abilities, can now you have you know opportunity to to go to the university to actually study. Uh, but now that opportunity is, is in jeopardy simply because you know kind of the corruption that exists among college co- college college athletic sports. And one thing I think also, brother, I'll close with this: I think the full extent of the kind of corruption is not being conveyed here. You know, because one of the things is that you know. When you got a school like University of Connecticut is bringing in over a billion dollars, you know, a year, you know, just on football alone. Forget about basketball and the other sports endeavors. Oh, you're talking about football alone bringing in a billion dollars, and now that you're talking about your $40 million in debt, there's something else going on other than what they're expressing in this, in this, in this piece. Um, I suspect that also um, the college professors, I mean the college professors, college uh, presidents, uh, vice presidents, I think those people in the administration also had a hand in terms of enjoying the spoils. So clearly, brother, it's a problem of corruption, and so I think that, uh, again, you're right, it always falls on the people, you know, uh, uh, who are least um, responsible for that corruption. I agree. I think that's the nature of capitalism, unfortunately, that – that you know that the uh, that the that, that the mistakes of the uh, of the leadership always fall uh, 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 the masses of uh, working people always uh, you, you, you know uh, always pay for it. That's how the rich continue to make their profits. Uh, you know even in spite of how corrupt they are. And. Um, you know, I think this is just one aspect, and I think it pervades all of uh, college athletics in the U.S. You know, it's not unique to UConn. Brother Moses? Yeah. Brother Moses, you want you want to respond? Yeah, um, this is, um, well, 
It's hard. But do you do you think losing a billion dollars a year is an easy proposition? Is that easy to do? Okay. All right, brother brother Moses. All right. So listen, you know, uh brother Africa. We have some technical difficulties with brother Africa, so let us let us oh. move forward. Yeah, brother Africa. Yeah, I'm back. I'm back. Yes, we have some technical difficulties. So what we're gonna do is let's take brother Moses at the end we're gonna take call of six four five seven. Brother Moses, your response to just um financial crisis at UConn and just in general when you look at uh, how money has been dealt with on a universal level in the sports industry, how everybody getting paid but the ball players. Your response to this article. Well, this is capitalism. I mean, this is the dog-eat-dog uh, profit, profit, profit um, upon whoever you can prey upon, you can profit upon them. Um, this, this is the whole anarchy of a production system of of just uh, individualism, and uh, there's no union, there's no uh, class consciousness or any kind of loyalty to uh, to the group and the group interests uh, and advocating the group interests. Uh, so you know this this is um, this is something we you know the the student players are going to have to overcome. They're going to have to unite and get and be united um, around a common common interest if they're going to advance in terms of uh, benefiting from their labor. Uh, and so, you know, but all workers face this contradiction and, you know, unions, unions are the are the immediate answer, the day-to-day answer, but ultimately it becomes down to a political party, a party that's able to guide them through the revolutionary process and uh, bring them into scientific socialism. It's the true answer in terms of organization. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay, we'll take call on input 6457. Welcome to Africa. Your comments, question, caller. Six four five seven. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead, Carl. We can hear you. Oh, okay. Salute to y'all for the show. But uh yeah, man, I, I would recommend people check out uh Taylor Branch, uh writer, uh who we had a nice article a couple of years ago in the Atlantic about uh college athletics period. And he he talked about how they came up with the concept of the term student athlete. And it was basically a way of them avoiding paying compensation uh, to the players. And the whole idea of amateurism, which was a term created to figure out a way not to pay. Now, about five years ago, Northwestern players tried to unionize and say that they were state employees. And the NCAA fought it with everything that they had. They eventually got one of the players uh, to kind of cross the line and get rid of it. Uh, but that fight is still going to continue. Uh, when it comes to UConn, they're unique. They're a unique one because the women's team is, you know, just as renowned as the men's team. Uh, that's what brings in all the revenue. But when you're dealing with college bu- budgets, always understand this: when you see deficits, deficits are created on purpose, and basically they roll over the debt 
and assume that the contracts that they get in the future, whether it's TV contracts, ad revenue, or whatever else, will pay off that debt as they go. And as the uh, gentleman said before, you pay off your cronies, you pay off your friends, you set up sweetheart deals for tournaments and bowl games and things like that. And across college sports, remember, football and basketball are the revenue generators. They pay for everything else, which means golf, tennis, baseball, all these other sports are basically able to fly across the country and have this huge prestige based off the work of the black football and basketball players. And for the majority of states in America, man, you look up highest paid state employee, it's a football coach. Or if it's a basketball coach school like, you know, a Duke University coach K, uh, it'll be him. That's the highest paid state employee in that state. Uh, Nick Saban makes over $7 million a year. Uh, the alumni at Alabama paid for his house, uh, $4 million plus house down there in Alabama that the alums paid for. So this is big business where everybody is eating out of the trough except for the people who are responsible for creating that trough, which would be the talent, the, the young kids, uh, for the most part, black people. Uh, and you see these coaches, these uh, board members, and all these other people who are, you know, just feeding off of them. So, yeah, this is, you know, capitalism in its open form to where you can see not only the corruption, but I would argue that this is almost a human rights violation to where you've created terms not to pay people for their work while everybody else enjoys the spoils of what they toil for. So, yeah, this, this, this story that you guys presented today, man, is right on the money for the NCAA and what they are, which is essentially uh, an arm of uh, punishment to keep players in the position that they're in, but they really serve no other purpose. You see what I'm saying? So when a big school who they like or has good, you know, a, a good relationship with the NCAA because they're revenue generator, when they get in trouble, they get a slap on the wrist. When a smaller school gets in trouble, they'll shut down the program for five years and take away scholarships and all that other nonsense. But, you know, what you're looking at right now with the coronavirus out here is these people are still trying to figure out ways to get these boys on campus without the other students on campus. Uh, there was a story from Arizona this week where a young player, uh, where he said he, he wasn't sure if he was going back. Uh, and, you know, the fans jumped on him and, you know, called him all kinds of names. You know how they do. But, uh, you know, it, it's really obvious now because the coronavirus has kind of taken away a lot of the covering that they've used over the years to try to hide this fact for what this is, which is a for-profit system where the employees, which would be the talent, are the only ones who don't get paid. Another form of slavery. Thank you, Carl. Points where I made. Brother Mucho, you'd like to respond to this subject matter? Um, yeah. I would say that it's, it's another form of exploitation, another form of looting, um, just as in Congo, so that way that they can keep themselves in power. Um we know uh, when we look at sports uh, information and ideology, we use it as a tool to build relationships and, and to not just exploit people. And what we do um, as African people, we try to push our children towards that, not knowing what's actually happening to them. And they don't even get a proper education. So, um, uh, I didn't get to, to read the full entire story, 
but it it just all goes in lines with the powers that be. It's it's just a form of control um, to keep people oppressed, to stress people out, you know, um, to confuse people even more, to further transfer money into the hands of the people who are already dominating everything. So it's just another form of looting, if you will. We can add that into the category so that way the masses of people can um, know, as Anthony said, there's, there's all different forms of looting. And so we have to be able to recognize them in all of their essences. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave with that. And we'll go to call on 5146. Your response to this phenomenon of using up all the money on the universities and the athletes who have to pay for it, call on 5146. Yes, it is a form of exploitation. They don't they don't really care about these young people, even during the coronavirus. It has to do with keeping their pockets filled, having them buy the best house, the biggest car, take the vacation. They don't give a hill of beans about these kids. As has been said before, this is another form of slavery. They are exploiting. They're using their these young people's talents to keep them in a position of power. And I think that you'll see it not only in this university, UConn, but it's widespread. It's widespread. They don't want to pay these young people for their talent. They want to use them up while they're young and healthy. And as has been said, they're trying to get them back onto the campus, regardless of whether they live or die. It doesn't matter. Same is true about exploitation and power. Diamonds in Africa, they would cut off the hands of these young people just to hold on to that diamond. So you understand? Africa is a very resourceful country. It is rich but they know how to exploit people worldwide. So, yes, we don't worry about the looting. Someone take the TV or a pair of shoes. Chances are many of them have insurance coverage anyway. They just put this looting on the blacks because it makes it look good. It's good television. Not to mention you have white looters also. But the looting that we don't see televised is the one that really hurts and is robbing the country dry. They know how to loot you, and they know how to steal from you in a very hidden way. They have no shame in their game. They're taking money all the time. So now they say, oh, I wonder how is it that black people have like 17000 in savings and the average white family has like 170000 in savings? Oh, I wonder, how did it come to be that you have only 4% of them or 40% of them have houses and you have like 80% of the whites have houses? They know exactly what they're doing. It's by design. It's not an accident. Yes, I appreciate your show, Brother Africa. Thank you for feeling back okay. on you. Uh, let's go brother, down, man. Can, can, can I add two more things? Yes, go ahead, brother. Go ahead. It was real quick. Yeah, just real quick, for those who don't know, 
University of Alabama uh, football stadium holds 100,000 people. So when you talk about hot dogs, beer, soda, pretzels, all the things sold at that stadium during those games, talk about the massive amount of money that's being exchanged at that point. These, like some of these schools, their local economy is based on having that sport there, having home games there, having out-of-towners come, stay at the hotels, uh, pay for parking, and, you know, pay for going out to restaurants while they're there. Like that is their economy. These young, you know, black, uh, black men who are basically, uh, I, guess, I guess you could say, are paying full boat for everything with the idea of a scholarship. Now, when I was a kid, they had this thing called Prop 48. If your grades weren't right, you would have to sit out the first year and get academically eligible for the next year. This was something that was standard practice. Well, we get to the early 2000s, you never heard of anybody being put on Prop 48 because they figured out ways to what? Keep people eligible without actually educating them and people are graduating with communications degrees who don't even have experience and for the most part are just being shuffled along as long as they can still play and make revenue for these schools. So, you know, great points by everyone, but I just wanted to add that on there because the NCAA has been a particular problem for me over the past few years in talking about this stuff. Okay, let's see if we can call a 9435. Call your response, 9435. Yeah, I, I would just like to say that uh, your first discussion about the situation in the Congo creates an illusion, an illustration of a very serious problem that occurs within the world of exploiters. And that is for them, the exploiters, to blame us for the exploitation that they do of us, of the looting that they do of us, if you will. And that can be seen clearly in that first discussion you had, but even more so here in the second discussion where you talk about how not only do they oppress us as we work the fields as sports persons, as people who are players, but they also exploit us as we pay to come and watch these sports personality. And so they are the true looters. They're the true exploitators. They're the true burners. And we cannot afford them the luxury of saying that we are the looters. That's a misnomer. I think that H. Rap Brown, our brother who's still in jail, was correct. He said that black folks do not loot. We confiscate and reappropriate. And that's what we do. Thank you. Says point where I take it. Maybe we should rename the show entitled Who Are the Real Looters? But anyway, Panda's excellent job. Well, everybody stay on the line. We're going to listen a few minutes to a message from Kwame Nkrumah as he speaks to those enemies of Africa. And then when we come back, we just would like to hear each one of y'all final thoughts for tonight. Your points for where I take tonight, and we want you to hold for a few more minutes. And we're going to listen to Nkrumah, then we'll get your final thoughts. You got to listen to Africa on the move. Let's go to Kwame Nkrumah. 
talk about forces against Africa. The forces arrayed against us are, and I use the word most carefully, formidable. They are intense and powerful. They are, as I have taken some pains to explain, the forces of imperialism acting through their instruments, new colonialism and colonialism, ably assisted by the agents of the Cold War. They operate in worldwide combinations at all levels, political, economic, military, cultural, educational, social and trade. And not all, and through intelligence, cultural, and information services. <laughs> they operate from European and African centers, using agents who, I'm ashamed to say, are often on patriotic sons of Africa, buying personal satisfactions with the betrayal of their country's safety and integrity. They seduce leaders. They seduce leaders of the African political, trade union, and people's organization, thus creating rifts and quarrels within the national front. On the broader front, they are amassing their forces in a determined effort to stay the advance of African liberation and the march of unity. It is not accidental that the countries of the European common market and those spearheading the Atlant Atlantic Treaty Organization, the imperialist powers who have brought in their vassals, Spain and Portugal. Portugal, in fact, since the wars of the Spanish succession, 1700 to 1714, being a protectorate of Britain, which has enjoyed special trading and unnecessary rights in both Portugal and in the Portuguese territories for over 200 years. It is not difficult to understand, therefore, why Britain has not raised her voice against the atrocities in Angola and other protected Portuguese territories and actually supported Portugal's preposterous scheme at Goa in India was an integral part of the multipolitan country. The arms and troops that are pouring into Angola cannot be regarded in isolation from the international organization of imperialism and the Cold War militarism with which they are most definitely linked. It is absurd to think that Portugal, one of the poorest countries in Europe, Suppose so large an army, so well equipped, as that which is defending her colonial possession in Africa, without the active aid she must be receiving from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Nor can we look upon the way in which South Africa is busily building up an armed force equal to any held by the nations of Europe 
without sending the international implications that are obviously involved. She has, we hear, a secret military pact with Portugal. And the interlocking imperialist interest collected in the Congo and the Rhodesians, Angola and Mozambique, which are also linked with the great mining and financial interests operating in South Africa, create a chain of allies which seriously threatens both the fight for extending African emancipation from colonialism and independence of the new African state. Now, that African independence has been achieved, over a large part of the continent and the national consciousness of Africans from north to south, from east to west, is adding momentum to the struggle for independence. Every kind of means is being used by the colonialists to arrest its progress and defeat its objective. They are attempting many methods, some sinister, some beguiling, to wreck our efforts. They strike antipathetic postures. On one side, they perform acts calculated to strike fear. On the other, they try to do hoodwink us with fictitious gifts, which superficially pander to our hopes and aspirations. They are the present attempts to deflect our purpose, to weaken our determination. Appreciate your contribution to today's program. 
We thank you. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. You'll find the thoughts for tonight. Yes, um, it's been an interesting show. Uh, very, very thought-provoking, and uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on there and add my two cents to this illustrious and very, very intelligent panel and to get so far. And I just thank you, and I look forward to another. Have a good night. And we thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. And we go to our call of 9435. 9435, your final thoughts for the night, Carl. 9435, your final thoughts. Okay, while we wait for 9435. Hello, hello. Yes, yes, Carl, your final thoughts for tonight. Well, again, thank you for a great show, brother. And we're... Struggling to resolve the issue of communications with our brother in Jamaica. All right, thank you, brothers, for your contribution to today's program. Next, we go to caller six four five seven six four five seven. You'll find the thoughts for tonight. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on. I appreciate the show. You guys always do good work. Uh, the Nkrumah uh, message was really apropos for the show because we were talking about looting, and the Nkrumah message kind of played into what we're talking about, the idea of force, which is what is used ultimately to get the conditions that we're in right now. Uh, I, I think uh, Amos Wilson was really good at explaining this, talking about these countries who we consider wealthy are the countries who do not have the so-called stuff and they use their military force in order to get the stuff. So the cobalt conversation y'all had earlier, which is necessary for technological advancement for everybody across the globe, that becomes a commodity that they will kill for. You look at England, they import 50% of their food, but they have their military and they use it and, and their alphabet groups and, and, you know, black ops groups in nefarious ways. As we all know, you come to this country, uh, one of the lowest birth rates on the nation in the world as far as replacement of people, and you see them do the same thing, use force uh, to get the things that they don't have and impose their will on other nations. And we've you know, seen what they've done to Venezuela over the past year. So in Kuma, uh, that, that, that speech was really, really, really important, and, and it gets into the looting that we were talking about tonight. And speaking of looting, brother, I'd like to add to your point. You are absolutely correct because, again, England, with the co- collaboration of the United States, they are holding $1 billion worth of gold belonging to Venezuela where they just want to gangster and take and haven't given back to them. Uh, Venezuela has appealed to the U.N. World Court, and they're fighting to get their resources back. But this is another example of how the West have always looted and ruled by force. Thank you, my brother, for your contribution to today's program. Next, we go to Muto, your final thoughts for tonight. Um, yes, I believe that um, we must remember with speaking and looting that uh, we have to remember that we were the first 
things that were looted as a people from the continent of Africa. That's where the looting began that um, I think is very relevant to everything that we talked about because it shows the dire need for organization, for pan-Africanism. Um, that it shows that we all need to belong to an organization that has African ideology towards it. We need to start looking to Africa for answers as a people and stop looking to Western Western world countries. Um, again, we need to uh, politically educate ourselves. We need to start reading books from our ancestors, from those who still here. Uh, for those who, who have the issue with training their mind to read, because that's uh, something that was been stripped away from us. So in, in 2020 now, we're finding it harder. There's videos, Kwame uh, Toure uh, or, or any ancestor, Malcolm. We need to start listening to these people and, and, and understanding that, that these times are, are still prevalent to when they were here. So we have to find a way to, to educate ourselves through, through all, many different ways. You know, if you if you have a hard time reading, find the video or find the audio. You know, but we have to start training our minds to think like African people and get away from Americanized thinking, get away from American politics, American capitalism altogether. So um, we must work towards true collectivism and true socialism so that we can have true revolution so that way the world can be free. So, so that's something we need to work on. We thank you, brother, for your contribution to today's program. Next, we have Brother Haki. Your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, to, to say that the situation for African people is perilous is an understatement. Uh, we understand clearly what's going on economically. Uh, one of the things is that uh, the supply chain that historically existed in the world in terms of facilitating trade has been destroyed. It was a conscious process by the United States government, and I'm very clear on this. COVID-19 was never the problem in terms of the economic malaise that the society was confronted with. It's always been the capitalist system. But, of course, the COVID-19 gives the, uh, gives the government a certain amount of uh, deniability in terms of just how bankrupt um, the capitalist system is. But having said that, one of the things you can understand that, you know, as the U.S. restructured this economy, one of the things it has to do, since it can't compete globally, one of the things it has to do is to create regional relationships with countries, which means that when you look at the population of 300-plus million people in America, the problem in terms of access to jobs becomes problematic. So given this reality, the, the government has to make some hard choices in terms of what you do with all these people that you don't have a need for. And specifically, when we talk about African people in terms of the historical legacy of oppression and uh, marginalization that African people are confronted with, we can anticipate this oppression and marginalization will actually increase. So we have to have organizations. We have to be prepared for whatever comes down the road. It's that simple. And as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because without unraveling the matrix, then, uh, then, then, then standing up and fighting against the forces that are coming at us, it's a very difficult job. We must have organizations, and I close with that, and you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki, for your contribution as well to today's program. And we now go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is uh, in light of the situations we're confronted with worldwide, we have to organize as never before. 
and that was uh, that was the most important lesson that uh, Brother Kwame Ture left us. We must organize to achieve Pan-Africanism, one unified socialist Africa. And to find out more about uh, Pan-Africanism and about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, please visit our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thanks very much for this opportunity to participate in this program, and have a good night. And we thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. And to our listening audience, friends, and supporters, we will again like to remind you of this past week of Brother Chukwami Ture's birthday. It was the 29th of June. He would have been 79 years young if he was still living. And we would like to make sure that the best way to honor him is to go about and continue to fight for African people, total liberation, and unification on the all-scientific socialist system. In essence, let's try to fight for pan-Africanism. It is the solution to all African people problems and suffering around the world. Once we have achieved this objective, African people will be in a position of strength. They will be in a position to control their own destiny. And at the same time, we will be in a better position to help fight for a serve humanity and create a just one. Until next time, remember, this program is under the banner of the African Awareness Association. It comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. We ask you to please share this information with your friends, your network. Tell them come and join us on Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. where we can talk shop and where we can speak truth to power. Because remember... Without information, you cannot think, and without organization, you cannot think clearly. We encourage you to join an organization that is working for your people. And if not, you don't join one, be a one that will work for the liberation of your people and Until next time, we too would like to remind you that we are not free, and we leave you with the song, Not Yet You Google. You have been listening to Africa on the Moon. You can email us with your views and your comments by emailing us at email Africa on the move two at gmail dot com. So we'll continue to move forward Apple backwards level and we'll see you next week. You have been listening to Africa on the Move, host Brother Africa.
audience is bugging. It's one of two suckers, ignorant brothers, trying to rob and steal from one another. You get caught in the mid. So to crush that stereotype, here's what we did. We got ourselves together so that you could unite and fight for what's right. Not negative cause, the way we live is positive. We don't kill our relatives. Pop, 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 one a shot, who's the blame? Headlines, front page, and rap, the name. MC Delight here to state the bottom line. The black on black crime was way before time. Took a brother's life with a knife at his wife. Cried cause he died of trifling death when he left his very last breath. Was I slept to so watch his step? Back in the 60s, our brothers and sisters were hanged. How could you gang bang? I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan and I shouldn't have to run from a black man. Cause that. Therefore, we 
must ignore, fight it, bust it. Heavens at the door, so there'll be no bum rushing. Let's get together because we're falling apart. I heard a brother shot another, it broke my heart. I don't understand the difficulty, people. Love your brother, treat him as an equal. They call us animals, Mm-mm, I don't agree with them. I'll prove it wrong, but right is what you're proving them. Take keys before I leave for what I'm saying, or we'll all be on our knees. Is served on a platter, making a date, not failing to anticipate. They got greedy, so they fell for the bait. That makes them a victim, picked and plucked. New jack in jail, but this is the best they ever duck. There's no one around, cause in jail, you're a number. They never took the time to wonder about. Yes, we urge to merge. We live for the love of our people, the hope they get along. Getting a point to our brothers and sisters who don't know the time. Boy, don't be around. Setting your head, you know our job to build and collect ourselves with intellect. To revolve, to evolve for self-respect. Cause we, we got, got to keep, keep ourselves in check. Or else it's Talk to me, so you can't see. Oh, what's 
noted both the importance of African Liberation Day in terms of our African identity and some of the root causes for our problem of identification. I have met brothers and sisters who say that their mother tongue, quote unquote, is French, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, as well as English, which we speak. And because of this, we have a problem of identification. We do not know whom we are. And that is why this gathering is of great symbolic importance, because it is an act of identification. We are saying that we identify with the African people of the African continent. We are saying that we are an African people. And when we make this identification, have no illusions about the fact that this is a very revolutionary initiative. It is a rejection of every other form of identification which the white society has asked us to accept. Let me draw your attention to something which white universities and white libraries practice. And this is a university community. Numerous universities lie around this land. Go into their libraries and check the Library of Congress cards under Europe or European. You will find all entries listed concerning the continent of Europe. You will also find entries listed about Europeans in East Africa, Europeans in North Africa, Europeans in Asia and Australia. Look under the Chinese, you will find entries listed not only for mainland China, but for Malaysia and for the Chinese in, in, the, in North America. But look on the Africa and the Africans, the only entries on the Africans relate to the continent itself. There are no entries on the Africans overseas. There is no such category. Africans who have been raped from the continent mysteriously disappear and become Negroes. In memory of Brother Kwame Ture and his birthday, June the 29th, we present Kwame Ture on Pan-Africanism and Socialism. Pan-Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the masses of the people up. It is here then that we'll come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. It's Chumpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. 
and we get stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism, because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I say, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> so we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and I'm picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system, and there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please, please summarize that we might have. No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my time. I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching it. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm a responsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go by time. I got my clock. Thank you. Matter of fact, I can say it in two words. Black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one, Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism, and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. 
Of course, and me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Punish me, I read down for book you. 